1967, the first in a series of blockbuster films hit the cinema screens in the UK, chronicling the capers of a special agent named James Bond. And I suppose if you're a Bond fan, uh, you will know the title of the first film, On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Love him or loathe him, there could never be any doubt, could there, who Bond was working for. Queen and country, Her Majesty. And yet I wonder this morning whether an outsider would say of us definitively, he or she works for King Jesus on His Majesty's service. As we continue our series, Good News of Great Joy for All People, that's the question that we're going to be asking today. And I invite you to reopen your Bible to Luke chapter 19, where we find the parable which poses the question. Luke chapter 19. Sometimes called the parable of the ten minus, alternatively the parable of the ten pounds. The parable runs from verse 12 to 27, but I want us to notice firstly the crucial preface which we find in verse 11. Jesus never told parables into a vacuum. He always gave these stories in a context. This is an Aesop's fables. And in this particular parable of the ten minus is a revealing foreword. It's in verse 11. While they were listening to this, he, Jesus, went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. And from this verse, we learn two vital pieces of information. First of all, when Jesus told the parable. It was while they were listening to this. And what was this that they were listening to? Well, just step back one verse to verse 10. Today salvation has come to this house. The situation is that Jesus is speaking in the home of a turncoat tax collector named Zacchaeus. And Jesus has radically uh, turned around the life of this man. And so he says, salvation has come today to this address in Jericho. And therefore the implication, that while they were listening to this, the implication is that Jesus tells the parable whilst still in Jericho. While still presumably in the house of Zacchaeus. Notice also, additionally, And perhaps more importantly, a second thing. Why the parable was given. He went on to tell them a parable, verse 11. Notice the word, because. Because he was near Jerusalem, it was only 17 miles away at this point, and the people thought that the kingdom of God would appear at once. And why wouldn't they have thought such a thing? After all, Jesus has been traveling on this long road trip from Galilee to Jerusalem. He's been coming all the way from the very north of the country down to the south. And as he has been on the move, 
momentum has been building. Jesus has been wooing the crowds with his teaching. Jesus has been healing the blind with a word. He's been making the lame stand up and walk. He's even been saving tax collectors. Is there nothing this man cannot do? And so Luke says that now with Jerusalem on the near horizon, expectations are at fever pitch. Belief is rife that God's kingdom will now come at once, immediately, powerfully, and victoriously. The notion was that God's enemies, the Roman occupiers, would be overthrown. And that Jesus himself would take the throne in Jerusalem as king of the nation. And such was the wave of expectation. Such was the vivid imagination of the people that Jesus, Luke tells us, told the parable to burst their bubble. And Jesus instead engenders a different expectation altogether. And he says, let me tell you a story, a parable, which is representative of a different chain of events. Let me tell you of the man who would be king, though not immediately. Let me tell you of the enemies who defy the king in the very near future. And then let me speak to you about the return of the king, and in that two things, the reward of the king and the rebuke of the king, depending on the service rendered. Well, this is a story Jesus tells in outline, but let's now consider it in a little more detail together. First, the man who would be king. See, the parable of the ten miners revolves not so much around money, but around a man. It begins, this individual, he begins as a nobleman. He concludes the story, however, as a king. What is notable, what is striking in the context is that this man does not become king instantly, nor immediately, nor visibly. Rather, he must set off on a pilgrimage, as verse 12 records. A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king, and then to return. Actually, this would have made a lot of sense in the historical setting here. It would not have been a foreign Storyline to Jesus' hearers. Uh, In the first century, while the Jewish nation governed itself, it was, of course, occupied by the Roman Empire. And one of the results of this was that upon the death of any Israelite king, the heir apparent would have to go to Rome to speak to the emperor and press his case to be ratified, to be sort of rubber-stamped, as king. And as a matter of fact, uh, King Herod the Great, remember him, the killer of Bethlehem's infants, well, he had to make this trip to Jerusalem and he was ratified as king in that instance. It could also, however, go the other way. Uh, he had three sons, uh, all of them also went to uh, Rome, and one of them, Archelaus, when he made this trip, he was rejected as king. And he was sent back as a, an under ruler an ethnarch, not a true king. Well, it was this kind of situation, says Jesus. Uh, there was a nobleman, and he, and he went on a pilgrimage, 
The time frame evidently is extensive because he goes to a distant country. And it's with that same purpose of enthronement, of appointment as king. Now, it's at this point that Jesus adds a critical detail which sets up the rest of the parable. And what our Lord says is is that before the nobleman leaves, he makes provision for his business. The nobleman, obviously, is not going to be around himself to conduct affairs. And evidently, too, he has lots of resources to be doing business with. And so he has a plan. He calls in ten of his servants, and he gives each of them a stewardship. A small stewardship, in verse 13. It's not a vast amount of money. Uh, You've probably never heard of a miner before. Uh, It's about three months' wages, four months' wages. Not a huge amount of money. And also notice that it's not a variable amount of money. Don't confuse this parable with the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, where each of the servants is given a different amount. They're given the same amount here. He calls in ten servants, and he gives them ten minas, which by my calculations is one each. And he says to them, put this to work. Make some money with my money until I return. Now, this is the... This is the setup for the, for the rest of the parable and what comes throughout the story. But what is Jesus saying? Uh, what is it behind the parable that this represents? Jesus never told parables without a point and without some parallel. And there is here a very clear parallel to Jesus despite the fact that commentators disagree over almost everything in this parable, they agree on this, that it is an allegory about Jesus and what will happen to Jesus in the near future. And here is what it teaches. It teaches that Jesus is like a nobleman. First, Jesus is going away. Now, somebody says this is not true. Jesus is going into Jerusalem. Yes, he's going into Jerusalem, but only for a short stop. First of all, Jesus will be crucified outside Jerusalem. He will then be buried in a tomb just about a week after this event. Three days later, he will be raised from the dead. And 40 days beyond that, he will ascend into heaven. Heaven is the distant country. And in saying this, it's important to understand that we must nonetheless recognize that Jesus is king in his absence. Jesus is king in absentia, in absence. Did you notice that? The king's absence is when he becomes king. It is after the nobleman goes, but before the nobleman returns. And this surely speaks theologically of Jesus' ascension into heaven. Which is much more than Jesus just going up into the clouds. That's often what we think of it. He's going up to somewhere. He's going to the highest place and he's going to be enthroned. It's a fundamental posture that Jesus is said to have now as we read it in the New Testament. Ephesians uh, 1.20, for example. God raised him from the dead 
and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given. Why is Jesus seated today? Because he is enthroned. He is king today. He is absent, but in authority. And yes, Jesus will return. We'll come back to that at the end of the story. And notice a final parallel. In the meantime, Jesus commissions his servants to serve him faithfully. If I may say it like this, each one of you here, if you are a Christian, are one of the ten servants. You're one of the ten servants. You've been given a common trust by Jesus. Now what is it? What, what does the minor represent? It's not spelled out for us. Is it the gospel? Is it the spirit? Spiritual gifts? Whichever it is, the fact is we have been given something in common, certain resources by Jesus, and Jesus says, put this money to work. Be a gospel entrepreneur for me while I am away. That's the setup to the story. Now, let's press on because next Jesus introduces a very interesting element. As in every good story these days, there is an enemy element that is introduced which thickens the plot immensely. Along with the servants and the man who would become king, next we encounter the enemies who defy the king. That's how they're described in verse 27, enemies. And in verse 14, we find this to be an accurate description. Because they, deny, they defy the king in attitude and in action. His subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. For Jesus' contemporary listeners, again, this would have been a familiar idea. Maybe it means nothing to us. I mentioned uh, Herod the Great. Herod the Great had three sons. He divided his kingdom three ways. And when he died, as I said, one of his sons, Archelaus, a few years before this, had went to Rome to press his claim for kingship. King Herod had written in his will that he would reign over Jerusalem and Judea. So he goes to the emperor in Rome. But unfortunately for Archelaus, trouble was brewing in Jerusalem. And many of the citizens there did not like Archelaus. And so they sent after him, historians record, you can find this in Josephus, they sent 50 men to Jerusalem hot on his heels. So that you had Archelaus in the one corner pressing his right to be king, and you had a delegation of 50 angry citizens saying, we don't want this man to be our king. And the record shows that they were in part successful, because Archelaus was not titled king, but sent back as ethnarch, which was a lower rank. Well, this is Jesus. It's the same sort of thing. This contemporary story, let me just adapt it a little bit. In my story, the nobleman goes away and he too is confronted by foes, by enemies. Once more, we don't have to think too hard about the parallels, do we? We can easily see how this corresponds to Jesus 
and to what will soon happen to him. In the very near future, seven days hence, in fact, Jesus is about to endure hatred. Jesus is about to be rejected as king. And a delegation will protest his right to rule. In John 19.15, the Jewish protagonists will bring their delegation to Pilate, who was, incidentally, a Roman governor. And they will say to him, We have no king but Caesar. And they crucify the man who was no king to them. And even when Pilate had a notice made and put above the cross of the crucified Christ, a notice which read, Jesus, the king of the Jews, even then, the chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. See, while Jesus was the man who would be king, his enemies defied him as king. And they defy him as king. It's still true today, is it not? There are only two types of people in the world. Disciples of Jesus and defiers of Jesus. It's not complicated. Jesus either is your king or he's not. Jesus either in your heart of hearts is Lord of all, or as they used to say, he's not Lord at all. And sure, some people maybe seem more apathetic on the surface than others. They don't seem as openly hostile to Jesus, but the bottom line is this. Press them on it. Jesus has no place, no scope for sovereignty in their lives. Others are openly opposed to Jesus. We know that. But whether covert or overt, all denial of Jesus is defiance of Jesus. It makes one an enemy of the king and his kingdom. And be assured of this, this opposition will ultimately fail. The delegation goes, it makes its case, it stamps its feet, expresses its hatred. It then comes in verse 15. I think it's my favorite verse of the parable. But he was made king, however. There was a guy in my uh, primary school, he was fantastic at sports, and if you ever get picked on the opposing side from him, you lost. People who pick opposing sides to Jesus lose. You cannot keep him from becoming king, and you cannot defy him or destroy him as king. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break off their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. It is a foolish mistake. It is a damning decision to oppose King Jesus. Indeed, notice at the end of the story uh, that the enemies are finally 
and brutally defeated in verse 27. Reflecting in its severity the seriousness of opposing such a pure and perfect and righteous king as Jesus. The punishment matches the seriousness of the crime. And so this morning, I I pray earnestly, and have been praying this week, that in this room there will be no defier of Jesus. Nobody here who is singing hymns about Jesus, or joining in the prayers about Jesus, in an external way, but who on the inside are saying, you're not my king, you're not my Lord. And if we are disciples, then we must know that hostility will be the context in which we serve. Right until the end, as we seek to steward what Jesus has given us, there will be enemies working against us and our King. But we must serve faithfully, because Jesus is returning soon, and faithfulness will be rewarded. Which brings us to the third point, the reward of the King. He was made king, however. He returned home, verse 15. The nobleman finally comes back from the distant country, just as Jesus will come back from heaven. And this nobleman now manifests his royal authority. He has the vestiges of kingship. He has the command of a king. And he sends for his servants and he calls them to account, which is the kind of thing that kings do. And in twaddle the first two servants. Just imagine it. Here's the nobleman. He left that way. He's come back and he's a king. What's it going to be like to stand before the king of kings and the lord of lords at the final accounting? But wonderfully, in this case, we have two trustworthy servants who have nothing to fear. A pair who have pleased their master, who have something to show for the time elapsed and for the trust given. And they display two things, notice with me. Number one, profitability. Your miner has earned ten more, says the first guy. How's that business, folks? One thousand percent profit. The other chap, uh, he adds, here's my result. Your miner has earned five more. That's pretty good as well. 500% profit. Not that they're boasting though. You notice, secondly, that neither servant takes the credit. They display humility. Because they don't say, sir, we have earned, we have made, we have produced. They say, verse 16, sir, your mina has earned. Or verse 18, sir, your money has earned. We didn't produce it. We just stewarded it, and it did the work. It did the business. Incidentally, while we're not told precisely what the mana is, uh, what the mina is, for this reason, I think it maybe represents the gospel. Think of the Apostle Paul, who in one sense did a great deal for the kingdom. We certainly talk Paul up in our circles, don't we, the Apostle? On a human level, many, many people came to faith through the efforts and and gifts and energies of the Apostle Paul, did they not? But what did Paul say was the secret of his success? 
What did Paul highlight as the reason for people's salvation? Was it his preaching? Was it his efforts? Was it his gifts? You know what Paul says, don't you, in Romans 1.16. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. You know what Paul's going to say when he stands before the king on the last accounting? He's going to look at the multitude of souls that he has been responsible for and he's going to say, your gospel did that. As I stewarded it. Oh, how good it will be for Paul. How good it was for these servants because the king responds with commendation and promotion. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Verse 17, that's the commendation. Which is quite a thing, isn't it, to commend a slave. Slaves aren't usually commended, but this is a gracious king. And then he says, because you've been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. That's what you call promotion. And in one sense, these are proportional responses, uh, insofar as it's ten cities for the Ten minus gained, and it's five cities for the five minus gained. Whether these cities are literal or not, we do not know. And in one sense, it is immaterial, because the point is really to stress that there is this proportionality. That there's going to be this correspondence in some way between what we do here and what we will have to do when we get to glory. By the way, that's a wonderful point as well, isn't it? We're not going to be sitting on a, on a cloud somewhere in heaven just strumming our heavenly harp. There's further, much more expansive work to do. And in one sense it's proportional, but then, of course, in another sense, this is extraordinarily disproportional and gracious, isn't it? You earn five minors, you get five cities. You earn ten you get ten cities? This is an exceptionally generous and gracious king. And it all depends in the future on what we're doing today, what we're doing now. And so this drives me to ask you a very obvious question, and it is this. Are you today doing faithful service, ministry, work for Jesus? Will you be able to say on that day, Lord, you gave me one pound of gospel, here's five pounds worth of responses. The gospel did the work, but I stewarded it. Here's the result of what you produced. Or here's five pounds of return. Of course, I'm speaking to Christians here because if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you need to think, first of all, about the work that has been done for you through Jesus Christ. Of course, we cannot earn our salvation. It's by grace. It's by what God has done, what Jesus did when he died on that cross. For your sins, in your place. You can't work your way into heaven. You need to receive that gift by faith today. But if you are a Christian, you are saved by grace. But Paul says in, is it Philippians? He says that we are to work out our salvation. Work it out with fear and trembling. We must be about the king's business, above and beyond, and within our own business. Are we business-minded for Jesus? It strikes me 
in thinking about this, that this should be a real challenge in quite a business-minded congregation. It's a great thing, isn't it? Charlotte Chapel is full of hard-working business people and folks that do other things as well, but it's quite a large proportion of our congregation, and you're hard-working, and you put all the hours and all the energies into that career. But does Jesus get a look in? Are you business-minded for him? Or does Jesus just get a small segment of your relaxation time on a Sunday morning? In saying this, I'm not suggesting that if you have a job, you should give it up and you know, go into full-time Christian ministry. This is about working for Jesus in our work, in our homes, in our leisure. Work for your employer. Just remember that you've got another employer, a higher employer, and you need to do business for him in the office too. Put the gospel to work at work. How about that? In the homes, parents, you're not just working for your family. You hear people say that kind of thing. I'm working for my family. That's good. But are you also working for Jesus in your family? He has given you a gospel responsibility to preach into your family. To teach spiritual things to your family and into your home. Do you have a business plan for the spiritual nurture of your children? Some of you that have children. Single people. Of course, you have lots of time, you know. You don't, do you? You don't have much time because you fill it with so much stuff. And you're working and you've got so many hobbies and so many friends and all these plates spinning. But in all this diversity of opportunity, are you working for Christ? Or just satisfying yourself? Are you at at a later stage in life, perhaps? If you are, are you still working for Jesus? Jesus only gives the pension when you get to glory. Are you still working for Him? If so, if that is your priority, if you can truly say that, then be encouraged. Through all the difficulties and disappointments, there is a reward that lies ahead for faithful service. There is. And if you cannot say that today, and and maybe you're a Christian, but you cannot say that today, that Jesus really is the driving force, then you should take the last point very, very seriously indeed. Which is, finally, the rebuke of the king. Here we come to a third servant, and uh, the discerning among us will notice that Although there are ten servants in the beginning, we only hear about three of them. We don't know what happened to the other seven. And probably this is because really the first three are all that's needed to make the case. There are only two essential responses to serving His Majesty. Faithful service, that's the first two, or unfaithful laziness, that's the last. And sadly, this uh, unfaithful laziness can well describe the third servant. Verse 20, another servant came in and he said, Sir, here is your mina. I've kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. At least he was honest. Here was a servant who didn't work for the king. Didn't work for him. It almost sounds contradictory, isn't it? A servant for the king, but he doesn't work for the king. 
And this was the case. He, he took those three months of wages, he wrapped them up in a handkerchief, which was usually used to protect the back of the neck from the sun, but he takes this and he wraps it up. He doesn't even secure the money, digging it in the ground, which was a common practice. He simply did nothing productive with it at all. What possible reason could there be for such apathy? Well, his excuse comes in verse 21. He says, I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. He says, I didn't work for you because I distrusted you and therefore I feared you. I knew you were a hard man. The idea is uh, that you're a strict administrator. Uh, You're an unscrupulous dealer. He seemed to have this idea that if he made money, then the king would pinch the profits. And then if he made no money, on the other hand, the king would be displeased with him. It was a lose-lose situation. So here's the deposit, nicely wrapped. How easy it is to be like this man. We're not exceptionally antagonistic to Jesus. We're just not very committed to Jesus. Here it is. Is that you? Is that you today? Is Christianity the side dish, not the main course? You've taken the gospel for yourself, but you're doing nothing with it? What will the king's response be to that? Well, on the final day, two things related. Number one, condemnation in verse 22, 23. Censure. The king, first of all, calls him a wicked servant. How would you like Jesus to say that of you? And he then adds that even by your own logic, you're really stupid in this. Because if you really thought I was a hard man, then why didn't you do something with the money? Right? If you knew I was going to come down on you, why didn't you at least put the money down on deposit at the bank and then you could have given me it with interest? It was a wrong view that he had of the king. And of course, uh, it was a completely false assessment. We've seen in the parable already that this king is good and he is generous. He's rewarded very well two of the other servants. But this servant has misled the king and so there is condemnation and there is also redistribution. Those standing around are told to take the one miner from the unproductive servant and give it to the guy who has ten. Some standing around protest, this is unfair. He's got ten and you're taking away the only minor he's got. And Jesus says, well, you need to understand this principle, that to those who have, more will be given. Presumably because they're faithful with what they're given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what he has taken, what he has, will be taken away. You know, if you have someone who works for you, and you give them a task, and they they don't do it, and you give them another task, and they don't do that either, what eventually happens? You stop giving them tasks. And you give it to the guy in your office who gets the work done. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, the million-dollar question arises here. Is this person, is this third servant, in fact, a Christian or not? It's actually a debated issue whether this, this third servant is a believer or an unbeliever. 
Some people think that the third servant is a Christian who loses out simply on their reward. In other words, this is 1 Corinthians 3.15. The believer who is saved, though by fire. He loses his reward, but he himself is saved. And proponents of this view, they point out that no mention is specifically made of judgment. Just of loss. And it seems also that, that this servant is separated out from the enemies who are slaughtered in verse 27. So they say this person is a believer who loses his reward. It's a possibility. Alternatively, some say, some believe this to be an unbeliever. And they say this person is one of those who professes to know God, but by their deeds denies him. And here we're thinking of, for example, Titus 1.6. There are people like that. And they would say, in the similar parable, no, not identical, in Matthew 25, the third servant is condemned. Very clearly, he's sent into the outer darkness. And they also note such things as this, that the servant is called wicked. I mean, that's pretty strong language, isn't it? For a Christian, if it's a Christian. They also say, and this is maybe most damning of all, that it is strange to find a Christian who fundamentally distrusts the master. He thinks the master is a harsh, hard man. And yet, is not the very definition of a Christian someone who trusts in Jesus Christ? For myself, for what it's worth, I would maybe lean toward the second view that this is not a believer, particularly because of that last point, but it is finely balanced. And in any case, either way, the seriousness of non-service is clear, right? In a sense, it doesn't matter. Whether it's loss of service or complete loss of salvation, it's bad either way. It's a serious matter if we're not serving the king. And as such, it's a poignant place, I think, for us to finish. Because we come back, I hope, with much greater impetus now, having considered the passage to the original question. And the question is this, are you on His Majesty's service? No? If not, then perhaps you are not a Christian, and you are therefore an enemy of the King. That's why you're not serving the king. Enemies work against the king. They don't work for the king. And if that's you, you need to realize this morning that while you were still God's enemy, he sent his son into the world to die on a cross so that you could be reconciled to him, so that you could become a friend with God even today. And you need to take the step this morning of putting your trust in Jesus Christ, of pleading with God to forgive you for the rebellion that you have had against Him. It's also possible today that you're here and the answer is also no, and you are a believer. And yet, for whatever reason, at this point in, his, in your life, you are not fully committed to the Master's service. Most of the time, you're about your own business and Jesus isn't getting a look in. And you need to recognize today the importance of serving Christ Fully. If you are, this morning, working for His Majesty faithfully, if you are employed, then be encouraged today. There is a reward 
for faithful service. And it's just over the next horizon. And therefore I trust today that we are all in His Majesty's service before the King comes to take account, to take stock. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we sometimes find that your word just touches a raw nerve. And Lord, if that is what is happening today in our heart, we ask that you'll give us the wisdom and the courage to take the steps we need to take. We ask, Lord, that we would work for you, not out of a desire to be made right with you. We know that's only through the work of your Son. But we pray that it would be an expression of our love for Jesus, the King of Kings. May we be a church that's fully employed. Do that, we pray, in our midst. In Jesus' name. Amen.